take our Bibles, go to the book of Revelation, chapter number 4. Revelation, chapter number 4. I'm going to do my best to stay on point here this morning. Got a lot of ground to cover. I want to give you a whole lot of Bible here this morning. The subject that we're going to be looking at, really uh, just about every single one of the verses we'll be looking at would be worthy of a lesson in and of itself. And uh, really, I'm hopeful to give you just maybe just a little bit of a Bible Institute type of lesson. Feed you some doctrine, uh, some meat from the Word of God. I will do the best that I can to uh, chew it up the best that I can for you and uh, make it easy to understand. But uh, going into this, uh, just um, the best I know to say is I know I won't be able to exhaust all of these truths that we're going to present to you here this morning. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we'll be looking at verse 1 through 11, but for sake of our introductory text, we'll just read verses 1 through verse number 3. After this, I looked, behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was like was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald." Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together today. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you, Lord, that you would help us today. Lord, we've got a lot of truth that we want to teach and preach here today. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to make good use of our time to stay on track, to say the things that need to be said, and to leave the things alone that uh, perhaps need to be saved for another time. We pray for each and every one that is here today that you'd open up hearts and minds. We pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. We pray for all of those that are tuning in through live stream that you'd help them to be attentive, uh, whether it be in their living room, in their vehicle, wherever they may be. We pray, Lord, that uh, this message today would be a help and uh, instruction and, uh, Lord, reveal some things, help us to see uh, things that are going to come and, and some things that hopefully everyone listening is going to see these sights. And Lord, I realize that there's probably some that will not see what John saw, but rather they'll go off into eternity without Jesus Christ. And Lord, the only thing that they'll come close to seeing is a great white throne of judgment. And God, I pray that that wouldn't be the case. And I pray that you'd touch that heart that is nearest to eternity and help them to turn their hearts toward you and put their faith and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, help us today, we pray, to just minister uh, the Word of God. And that is our desire in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I want to speak this morning on the subject of the throne of glory. We just read a little bit about this throne of glory. We're going to see a whole lot more about it. Some things that really, uh, to, to visualize this with the human eye, 
requires a little bit of artistic ability, and certainly it is beyond what I am capable of doing, and I believe it's beyond the capability of even any human being. John did the best that he could to describe what he saw by the help and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I know when we think about things to come and we think about heaven, I know there's a lot of sentiment. Uh, We've heard a lot of poems and we've sang a lot of songs about the streets of gold and so forth. But truly, there are a lot of things that are in heaven that as children of God, we're going to see one day. But it's hard for us to grasp the splendor and the magnitude and the holiness of this awesome sight that we call the throne of glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 9 it says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. A lot of times we stop at that end of that verse, but I want to remind all of us what verse number 10, the very next verse says. It says, but God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. There are a lot of things about eternity. There are a lot of things about heaven and the life to come that God has indeed revealed to us by His Spirit. And folks, I have a book right here that was not written by man, but this was authored by the Holy Spirit of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God used literally hundreds of men during various time periods all over the place, and He, he, he by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He moved them to write what we have here today. And of course, we just read a story, or not a story, but an account, I should say, of John the Apostle there on the Isle of Patmos, how he was transported, I believe in time, transported geographically, (coughs) excuse me, to see literally this throne of glory. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is in verse number 1, and I want to talk about a door, a voice, and a type. It says in verse number 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. We find only a couple times when there's a reference to a door being opened in heaven. Later on in Revelation, Revelation 19, verse number 11, we find that heaven was opened And behold, a white horse, and of course the splendor of the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming back to this earth. And I can't wait for that time to take place. We just had an election, and we're going to have, if the Lord tarries, we're going to have another election in two years. And none of us know what's going to happen here in our nation with its leadership and so forth, but I've got news for you that the answer to our nation is not in a political party or a political leader or candidate. None of that is going to solve our problems. The answer is right here in the Bible. It's Jesus Christ. He's coming back. In Revelation 19, He's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. He's not going to say, will you vote for me? He's not going to need your vote. He's coming back on a white horse, and out of his mouth is going to go a sharp sword, and with it he will smite the nations. He came as a little 
baby lamb in a manger, but he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This door is open in heaven, and this heaven that's being referred to is the third heaven. There are three heavens that the Bible tells us about. We're not talking about three levels of heaven like the Mormon church falsely claims. We're talking about the three heavens that were created in Genesis chapter 1, where we find that the earth was without form and void. It's engulfed in a body of water, and God says, let the waters be divided from the waters. And a firmament is created. And of course, these various spaces, these firmaments, are all referred to as heavens. We have the space, the atmosphere, where the birds fly. And that is referred to as the first heaven. We have past the atmosphere of the earth, and we have outer space, where the stars and the planets and the moon and all of the galaxies are. That's the second heaven. And folks, if Genesis 1 is an accurate, realistic account, and I believe that it is, then those waters that were divided from the waters, if you go to the end of outer space, you will find a body of water that our mind cannot even grasp that separates the, the atmosphere and outer space from the third heaven where the throne of God is. We read in the scripture that heaven has windows, the windows of heaven being open. Malachi talks about when we give that God would open up the windows of heaven and pour us out a blessing. We find that heaven has gates, gates made of pearl and doors and mansions and streets of gold. And it is a literal place. It's not just a state of being. But I have to say also that Heaven is a literal geographical place, and so is hell. Hell is not just a state of mind. It is a literal place that Jesus said himself, it is in the heart of the earth. Hell, it's a literal place of darkness and torment and fire. And Jesus talked about it in Luke chapter number 16. So heaven is opened here, a door, John says, And then he says in verse number one that there was a voice as of a trumpet. Now I'm looking forward to that trumpet, aren't you? Because the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter number four and verse number 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm not looking for the undertaker, I'm looking for the upper taker. And there's going to be a voice, a shout that's going to be like a trumpet. And this voice, and I realize that it says, with the voice of the archangel, But we read here in chapter 4 and verse number 1, and I believe this with all of my heart, that this voice that says, come up hither, and this voice, this shout that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4 is going to be none other than the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one that's going to call His people, the church, up. Revelation 1 and verse number 10 John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice 
as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Hey, who's making this voice as of a trumpet? It's the Alpha and Omega. It's Jesus Christ. And John says, being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Hey, the way that he appeared when he was here the first time is nothing like it's going to be the second time. I saw a bumper sticker, perhaps maybe you've seen it before, said, Jesus is coming back. And boy, is he angry. <laughs> so wait a minute, Jesus is mad? Let me tell you something, all of this horrible nonsense that's going on in the cultures and the governments of this world, all of the all of the lack of morality that's going on where people are just basically shaking their fist at God. Some of the decisions that our leaders and what they're voting for is sexual perversion and confusion. Can you believe some of the things that, we're, that our young people are having to deal with today? Who would have thought just a few years ago that Boys and girls would have the pressure and stress that someone has falsely taught them as they sit in the classroom, am I a boy or am I a girl? It's ridiculous. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. This boy in Seattle competed in track and field against the girls. He won, he won a state record. He beat all the girls. Well, good for him. You say, this, it got a little quiet in here. Sorry, this is not the Democratic Convention. It's a Baptist church. I'm, I'll try to be nice, but seriously. <laughs> when Jesus, the way Jesus is, is way different than the way that the liberal world tries to portray that he is. You know, saying the things that I just said, the world would say, well, that's very unchristlike. They don't know the Christ of the Word of God. They've made up a new one because it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Notice here in verse number 1, it says, come up hither. You know, an interesting point here, I believe that John is a type of the church. Remember how the Apostle John would lie on the breast of Jesus there at the Last Supper and how that John in his writings would refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I believe that John is a picture of the church. And it's interesting that this uh, this discussion here in chapter 4 takes place immediately after John's discussion. Jesus tells him all about the seven churches um, Ephesus and Sardis and and uh, the last one that's talked about at the end of chapter number three is the church of Laodicea. And that's the church that is just doesn't need God at all. They're lukewarm. They've got everything that they need. And it is a perfect description of modern Christianity today. I believe there are so many indicators here in the Word of God that tells us that we are indeed in the time when John says that Jesus told him, I'm going to show the things which must be hereafter. 
I believe that the hereafter that Jesus is showing to John, that we are right there at the end of that hereafter. Definitely in perilous times, definitely in the end days. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 1, Paul said, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him. I'm telling you what, folks, Jesus is going to rapture His church out of here. When the time comes, if you're still alive and you are born again, you're going to be changed instantly and be caught up. But before that happens, every one of our loved ones that were in Christ, that were saved, they're going to be changed They're coming up out of that grave. Their body's going to be changed into a glorified body. Jesus is going to bring their soul and spirit with Him. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, they're going to be reunited and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. If you'll recall in the Gospels when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared. And I think it's so interesting when you take a look at the last days of Moses and Elijah on planet earth, you find there's a little bit of variation. Now I believe personally that the two witnesses in Revelation are going to be Moses and Elijah. There's too many indicators that just point toward them as those two uh, two witnesses. But whether you agree with that or not, the bottom line is the Bible says that the devil disputed about the body of Moses. Moses was buried, but his sepulcher was remained hidden. And I think there was some practical reasons. I think that the Lord knew that they would take and they'd make the shrine of Moses uh, an idol to worship. But there was another reason, because Moses' body was going to be resurrected, uh, I believe, before some of the others were resurrected. And then, of course, Elijah, he didn't die. He was taken up in a whirlwind. And I believe that what we have here is two additional types. John is a type of the church, but I believe that Moses was a picture of the resurrected saint the one who died and was transformed, whereas Elijah is a type or a picture of the raptured saint, the one that is caught up that doesn't have to see death. Now, I heard a preacher one time say he wanted to die. He wanted to get to heaven before all of the crowd got there. Well, I say help yourself. I, you know, I'm not afraid to die because I know I'm saved and I know I'll go to heaven, but I'm not looking forward to that process because I don't know what it's going to be like. And I would much rather hear that trumpet sound and not have to deal with that. I remember as a boy, my parents, we would, they would get home from church or they'd be in a Bible study or a prayer meeting. And I remember them sitting around in the living room and talking about the rapture. And they would talk about how that they believed that it was going to take place in their lifetime. Well, it didn't. They've been in heaven for a number of years now. And uh, I still am hopeful that maybe I'll get to get in on the rapture. 
And I'm sure that many of you have loved ones that they thought that they would be alive when the rapture took place. And yet we see things just continuing to get worse and worse. And I'll tell you, all it tells us, folks, is that we're just getting closer and closer and closer. And just stay faithful. Just occupy till he comes. Verse number two, we see that John is transported to the throne. It says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Notice John says he was in the Spirit. Now, Paul was also caught up to the third heaven, but Paul said that he didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. He said, God knows. He said, I, I, he didn't understand all about it. And Paul said that he saw some things and heard some things that were unlawful for him to utter. You know, I guarantee you, a modern preacher, if they experienced what Paul did, they'd be trying to sell a lot of books, don't you agree? They'd try to become famous over it. Paul said, you know what? What I saw in the third heaven, he said, God doesn't want me to tell about it. And I think that there's also a side that Paul probably felt totally incapable of expressing in human language what his eyes had actually seen in this third heaven. It had to have been the grace of God for John to actually pin these words after seeing what he saw. Now, we see that John was transported and he was in the Spirit. Folks, the speed of light is the fastest thing that humans know of, but the speed of light, humanly speaking, is like a sloth. You ever seen those sloths? Turn in your Bible to... Aren't you glad I don't preach like a sloth? I've heard some preachers that it takes them a long time to make their point, and I've been one of those before, but, you know, those sloths is just like, how can... You can't even try to move that slow. Listen, being in the Spirit makes the speed of light look like that sloth that you see in the nature show. It's the, I, I, the best I know is it's the speed of thought. You remember after the resurrection that Jesus said to Mary, He said, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended, but I go to my God and to your God. And really, just a few moments later, He's standing there before doubting Thomas, and He says, touch me. Thrust in thy hand into my side. So within just a, a few moments, so to speak, Jesus had ascended by the speed of thought. He had presented himself before this throne of glory, and he had presented the blood just like the high priest did in the tabernacle that God established with Moses. That tabernacle in the wilderness was all just a little miniature type or model of the entire universe. You see, Jesus, when he died on the cross and he shed his precious blood, he did that through the eternal spirit. And when he presented his blood before the mercy seat in the third heaven, it was to satisfy the the demands of a holy God and a holy law. That brings us to the awesome sight of verse number 3. He said, and he, he that sat upon, uh, he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. There was a rainbow round about the throne in sight 
like unto an emerald. The jasper and sardine stone was likely reddish opaque color. Now, a sardine stone can often be uh, yellowish. It can be greenish. But the majority, especially in Palestine area, the majority was going to be a reddish color. Now, a sardine stone or a sardius is almost always going to be red. In fact, the term sardis, the church in uh, Revelation 3 known as sardis, that means red ones. And so as John is seeing this awesome sight, he's seeing some type of a reddish type stone. If you look at these stones, you find that there's different character within those stones. Sometimes there's some speckles or some stripes, and it's shiny, but it's opaque. And somehow what John was seeing of that throne was very much like a sardine stone and a... um and a, um, a jasper stone. All right, so uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse number 26, there's some comparisons here. And if you were to take John's description in Revelation 4 and compare them to Ezekiel's description in Ezekiel 1 and then several other chapters that Ezekiel sees this vision of the throne of God coming down to this earth, you'll see a lot of similarities, but also some differences. Ezekiel 1 verse 26, and above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. A sapphire stone is blue, different than what John saw and the appearance of a man above upon it. And he said, I saw the color of amber as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. What an amazing, awesome sight that Ezekiel is seeing. But, you know, it's interesting that John saw a reddish color, whereas Ezekiel is seeing a bluish color. Is this a different throne? I I don't believe it's a different throne. I believe it's the same throne. I will say this, Ezekiel seeing it from below on planet earth, whereas John is in the spirit and is literally in the third heaven. Now the combination of these descriptions include all of the three primary colors that make up the color spectrum of the rainbow. I realize there's five primary colors, but black and white don't count with this. In the rainbow, you have uh, all the red, blue, and yellow, and the combinations of those that make up all seven colors of the rainbow. My personal opinion, this is not a, I'll be honest, this is not a well thought out or even well-studied opinion, but it appears to me that Ezekiel is seeing this throne before the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. I think it's possible, just a possibility, I'm not teaching this as doctrine, but as Jesus entered into the throne and just like the Old Testament priest, he sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat. I think it's possible that John's seeing a different color. He's seeing the throne reddish, whereas 
Ezekiel is seeing it as a sapphire. He's seeing a bluish color. I don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly is an intriguing idea. The rainbow that John sees is like unto an emerald, which is a greenish color. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I know that all of these different stones, they have different representations. They say that a jasper stone it has healing properties. They say that a sardine stone is used for a comforting effect. I, I, I don't know about all of that, if it has anything to do with it. It, it. it may not be that it was actually made out of these precious stones. It may be that John and Ezekiel are just describing the color and the way that it appeared, because that's the best way that they knew to describe it. But I do know this for sure, that it was indeed an awesome sight. Now in verse number 4, we find that there's an audience that's around this throne. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. We don't know exactly who these elders are. I've heard a lot of different speculation. One commentator said that it was the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs. I I don't see that. I don't know. I guess 12 plus 12 makes 24. That's probably about the best that you could come up with. But personally, I, I don't think that that's who these elders are. But I do know this, that they were not angelic beings, but rather these are redeemed men. Because Revelation 5 and verse number 9 says, They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth." I know another Bible scholar said that you've got 12 representing the Old Testament saint and 12 representing the New Testament saint. Uh, I don't know exactly who these were, but I do know this. These are redeemed men that were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb that are around this awesome throne of glory in the third heaven. The crowns were, no doubt, rewards that they use to bring glory To the Lord. Verse number 10 makes that clear. We'll get to that here in just a few minutes. In verse number 5, we see that there are seven lamps of fire around this throne of glory. Verse 5, and out of the throne proceed lightnings and thunderings and voices. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In Psalm 77, in verse number 18, it says, The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lightened the world, and the earth trembled and shook. You know, I've been in some pretty awesome storms that were quite intimidating. Lightning and thunder. And, you know, when lightning strikes nearby and the thunder, you don't just hear it, you feel it. It shakes you. It's an awesome display of power, and that is the kind of power that is emanating from from the throne of His glory. What exactly are these seven spirits of God? Well, once again, 
I can't say for certainty that I know exactly what these seven spirits of God are, but I will say this, this is the best I can come up with. If you've got a better idea, I'm certainly open to it, but Isaiah 11, verse number 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is speaking about Jesus. And by the way, Jesus encompasses all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's nothing deficient or inferior in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is and was God manifest in the flesh. The Spirit of the Lord shall be upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. If you take the Spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, might, knowledge, and the fear of God. Did I miss one? One, two, three four, five, six, seven. There are seven descriptions of this Spirit of the Lord that is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the best that I can come up with. But I do know this, it is an incredible thing, and John didn't fully grasp or understand what he was saying. In verse number six of our text, we find that there's a sea of glass. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. You know, folks, sometimes people get so confused by tradition and sentiment and by artist renditions. You know what? I've seen pictures and people portray heaven like, you know, like a bunch of naked babies with wings playing a harp floating around on a cloud. How many of you men want to spend eternity like that? I'm really, I mean, it would be better than hell. I'll grant you that. But that's really not, that doesn't really appeal to to me floating around on a cloud. Folks, heaven, and especially the third heaven, it is a literal, tangible, visible place. And there's a lot of variety there. I mean, more than our eye and our mind can even grasp. Now, here's an interesting thing, this sea of glass. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of Bible, uh, some uh, cross-reference that I think will shed some light on this. Remember what I said earlier, how the, the third heaven is separated by this huge body of water called the deep? The waters above the firmament were divided from the waters below the firmament. Well, Job 38, verse number 30, it says, The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is what? It's frozen. Psalm 148, verse number 4 says, Praise Him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. This separation of the firmament between outer space and the throne of glory is a huge body of water. And the Bible says that the face of the deep is frozen. I read in the Word of God in Psalm 48, verse number 2, that the location of heaven is due north. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north the city of the great king. That's the third heaven, folks. Heavenly Jerusalem. It's due north. 
I read here in Psalm 75 and verse number 6, it says, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Hey, what direction's missing? The north. And so God is telling us that He sits on His throne on the sides of the north. And so, listen, we've got heaven that is due north. We've got a sea of glass that is a body of water that is frozen. I know some of you, you don't like to get cold. You may be thinking, preacher, are you saying it's going to be cold and frozen in heaven? It's okay, you're going to have a glorified body. You're never going to experience any cold. It can be absolute zero, and that's what I believe it's going to be, and you're going to be plenty toasty. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be the exact perfect temperature, I can promise you that. There appear to be multiple thrones in heaven. We've got this one, the throne of glory. I like reading about the throne of grace, because the Bible says, by the blood of Jesus Christ, I can come boldly before the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. And then I read about a throne that I'm glad that I'm not going to be judged at this throne. I'm going to be a a bystander and a witness. But the end of the book talks about a great white throne of judgment. And when God sits on that throne, the heavens and the earth are going to flee away. That's how majestic and awesome that that sight. Every knee is going to bow And every tongue is going to confess. Listen, you don't want to stand before that great white throne of judgment. You want to get born again. And you want Jesus to judge your sins. You don't want to have to pay for them yourself at the great white throne of judgment. I read in verse 7 and 8, and I've got to hurry here of our text, that there are four beasts, excuse me, there are four beasts around this throne. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was was and is and is to come. That's what these beasts are doing right as we speak around the throne of God. My mommy and dad's been gone to heaven for some time now, and they're uh, they're not one of those four and twenty elders, but they're somewhere out there in the multitude around, and they are witnessing those cherubims as they cease not day and night, crying, "Holy, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty." Listen, you may say that doesn't sound very exciting to you. Nothing in this universe is more exciting than looking at this throne of glory and crying, holy, holy, holy. Notice these four different faces that John saw. One was the face of a calf, one was the face of a man, one was of an eagle, and one was of a lion. How do you explain that? Well, these beasts are cherubs, they're cherubim. And John sees each one differently because he's looking from one perspective. The fact of the matter is, is each one of these beasts all had all four faces. A lion, an eagle, a man, and an ox, or a calf, if you will. 
They all had four faces, but John sees each one as having a different face. How do you reconcile that? Well, it's really quite simple. If you were to take every different direction of the throne of God, just like I would take these chairs, and they're all pointing, their main face, if you will, is all pointing toward the throne of glory. And as you can see from your perspective out there, one of you, this particular chair, you see the back of the chair. This chair, you see the front. This one, you see the left side. And on this chair, you see the right side. And so John is looking at the throne and he's seeing each one of these creatures as having a different face. Isaiah speaks of similar beasts and calls them seraphims, and they also had six wings, whereas Ezekiel chapter number one gives further detailed description of these creatures. Now, Ezekiel sees them as having four wings each, but you also got to consider that in Ezekiel one, these creatures also, where Ezekiel sees them, they all have wheels and eyes within those wheels. Now, to kind of explain without going into a detailed study of the book of Ezekiel, these creatures, I believe they're the same creatures that John saw. When Ezekiel sees them, they are actually bringing the throne of God from the third heaven down to the earth. And so Ezekiel is by the river Chabar, and he is looking up into the sky, and he is seeing these wheels and Wheels within wheels, and they're all part of these cherubims. Ezekiel 1 and verse number 10, As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Notice that in Ezekiel 1.10, he refers to that one face as an ox. But in Ezekiel 10, verse number 14, he says, when he saw them once again, everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second, the face of a man, the third, the face of a lion, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. It appears to me, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, that the identifying face of these creatures was the cherub or the ox. They all had four faces, but their main identity would be the face that would be of an ox. Ezekiel's vision varies due to the fact that the throne of God has been carried by these living creatures down to the first heaven. Now, let me just throw this in for free. We're almost done here this morning. Ezekiel 10, verse number 18 As Ezekiel is looking up, he's seeing these creatures, he's seeing these wheels, and he's seeing that they've got the throne of God's glory with him. And it says in Ezekiel 10, 18, then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. This threshold of this house is none other than the temple. And of course, we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture that the glory of the Lord 
It's departing. It's a tangible thing. What is the Bible referred to as the glory of the Lord? It's the Ark of the Covenant. Listen, Indiana Jones can look for it till the cows come home. I don't believe he's going to find it. They can dig all, they can dig the entire Middle East up, and they're never going to find the Ark of the Covenant because I believe Ezekiel saw the throne of God come down and take that Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and take it with him back to the third heaven. Now look with me at verse number 9, and I want to say this as I close. What does this have to do with me? You know, this isn't a typical message that I would preach on a Sunday morning. Most of the time we pick a topical message that deals with some kind of a life problem. What you've heard here today is some Bible truth that sadly, believers of yesteryear, they used to get a lot of this stuff. We don't get a lot of it today. Too often we're ignorant about what the Bible says, and so we feel intimidated by the Bible. Sometimes we don't really live for the future because the future is so unknown, and the Lord says, hey, you can know what it's going to look like. You can know what to expect. You can know a lot of these things because God freely gives them to us. He doesn't want us to just be wandering around with some little idea or some hope-so thing that is fabricated in our minds. He wants us to know. What does this have to do with me? Look with with me at verse number 9. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying... Watch this in verse number 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. What does this have to do with me? Do you really need to ask? Do you really need to ask? I'll tell you the problem, most of your problem here today is that you have this idea and concept of God that He's up there in heaven for you. And that just is not so. God put you down here for His pleasure and for His glory and for His honor. And you know, I I, I realize that God is a God of grace and goodness and kindness and Let me tell you something. God has done a lot for this preacher. His grace has been amazing. His forgiveness has been beyond my comprehension. The blessings that He has bestowed upon my life and my family and giving me a ministry, giving me a life that I can invest in doing some eternal good. I'm glad I don't have to go through life just running like the hamster on the wheel going nowhere. I've got a purpose and I've got, I've got something inside of me that, that fills that void. It's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that God did all of that for me. I hope and I pray that one day when I stand before Him, He'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
I hope and I pray that he'll give me some crowns and some gold and some silver and some precious stone. But you know what? I don't know that that's going to be... I don't know that I'm going to need any money in heaven. I don't need that. I'm not going to need to buy food. I'm not going to need to buy clothes. He's going to provide me a white robe of fine linen to cover me. There's going to be no needs in eternity. But I will say this, I hope by the grace of God that I'll have something that I can cast at his feet and say, Lord, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. So much of modern worship is about me. Oh, Lord, I'm so wonderful. I'm glad that you love me because I'm so... You know, that's really what they're saying. But that's not what the Word of God says. We need to fall down at our face. We would love Him and we would fear Him if we would see Him as He really is. This throne of glory is an awesome sight. And folks, it's as real as what we're seeing right here. As I stand before you here today, this throne of glory is even more real. And that's where God sits. And uh, I don't think that we need to ask the question, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you and I. Are you giving him glory and honor by the life that you're living? Are you living a life that's saying, God, I want to bring you pleasure? That's the real Christian life.